Welcome to Bedside Reading, the podcast where each episode I interview somebody about a book, a novel, a poetry collection, a memoir or biography, not traditional medical textbooks, and we explore the themes within which help make us better healthcare professionals. It's a bit like accidental CPD. Take us for a walk or a run, snuggle up with a cup of tea on the sofa, maybe with a lap full of kittens, listen on your way to work and add some immersive CPD, as well as getting some ideas for your to-read pile. Please let me know if you're enjoying the podcast. Rate us, review us. This really helps the algorithms of podcasting to suggest us to other people who haven't found us yet. Find us on Twitter, at Bedside Podcast, on Instagram, at Bedside Reading Podcast. And if there's a book you're desperate to come on the show to discuss, please do get in touch on Twitter, Insta, or by emailing bedsidereadingpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Tara George, a GP, medical educator, and compulsive reader and book buyer. This is Bedside Reading. I'm delighted to welcome Katie Nagel to the podcast today. We are talking about a fabulous book called The Vagina Bible. And Katie and I are talking about all things vulval and vaginal. We're talking about anatomy. We're talking about normal versus abnormal. We're talking about shame. And particularly Katie's area of interest, which is in persistent physical symptoms and thinking about how the author of this book, Jen Gunter, manages the topics of vulvodynia and persistent pelvic pain and also vaginismus. It was great fun talking to Katie. It's a really, really good book. Probably, possibly more um, for CPD than necessarily for patients. And if you listen on, you will come on to understand why that might be um, as we go on through this episode. Um, but yeah, thoroughly enjoyed talking to Katie. Thoroughly enjoyed the book. And I hope you will enjoy our conversation. Katie, welcome to Bedside Reading. Thank you so much for having me, Tara. So we are going to be talking about The Vagina Bible by Dr. Jen Gunter. But yeah. before any of that, would you like to introduce yourself so my listeners know who I'm talking to? Yes. So I'm Katie Daigle. I'm a GP, first and foremost, uh, a GP partner in North Sheffield. Um, and uh, I do some academic work half the week as well. So at the moment, I'm doing some medical education research on what we are now calling persistent physical symptoms. We used to call them medically unexplained symptoms, but that, that term's gone out the window for several reasons. Um, and I've got a background in medical education. I worked at University of Leeds for 11 years in various med ed roles. So I've got uh, that as another little interest as well. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I am really interested. So thinking about that idea of changing our language around mm-hmm. medically unexplained to persistent physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, if people aren't aware that there's been that shift, can we talk a little bit about, about that and why that has happened. Mm, of course. Yeah. So this came out of um, work done by my my supervisor, Chris Burton, um, and colleagues around uh, pers- p- um, patient preferences, first of all. Um, patients, of course, don't like the term <laughs> uh, medically unexplained symptoms. Um, it uh, devalues um, their experience uh, and it makes it sound like we don't know what we're, we're doing. Um, so patients don't like the term is, is the, <laughs> one of the big reasons. And also actually the, the science and understanding about what's going on um, in, in PPS and in persistent physical symptoms, you know, we, we're getting uh, our heads around what's actually going on in the body. So most of the time, actually, we can explain 
the symptoms. It's just that the frameworks are perhaps different from what we've been taught at medical school. So we can explain them. Um, and sometimes we need our patients' help to do that. And I'm a big fan of, of co-creation of explanation, you know, trying to find a framework that fits for both of you. Um, uh, but yeah, patients don't like it is the other reason. And it's a nice umbrella term. So there are lots of, lots of terms within that and underneath that umbrella. Um, so you can get really caught up in the the um, the nomenclature, you know, so things like bodily distress syndrome, somatic symptom disorder, they all fit underneath that umbrella. But persistent physical symptoms is a nice sort of uh, catch-all term that we're, we're tending to use now. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's medical education research that you're doing. Mm. Um, so what sort of things are you doing? Right. So um, I've started with an, a literature review, a scoping review of the literature to look at whether or not we're teaching this at an undergraduate level. So certainly my experience and my experience as an undergraduate and even postgraduate is that we weren't really given much formal teaching on this yet uh, we see a lot in practice. Uh, and I was certainly seeing a lot in practice and I felt that there was just this real um, knowledge evidence vacuum that I was working within. So that's how I got interested in it. Um, so I've started with a, a scoping review to see what's what's going on at the minute. And it may not surprise you to know that uh, there is still very little formal teaching going on at an undergraduate level on persistent physical symptoms. Chronic pain is um, better represented. Um, and the reason for that is it's got good ownership by the anaesthetists or the anesthesiologists, if you look across the pond. Um, so, so chronic pain is is being taught in some institutions, but fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, you might say long COVID now, you know, th those things are not formally being taught, certainly at an undergraduate level. And as I say, in my experience, not much at postgraduate level either. So that's why we all struggle with it, because we, we're not getting much teaching on it. <laughs> Hearing you say that makes me also wonder, I was listening recently to an interview where a GP was talking about the differences, I suppose, between primary care and the sort of patients that we're seeing in primary care versus secondary care. And, and he was specifically talking about headaches and saying that one of his trainees had brought him um, some an article, I think a podcast about headaches where a neurologist had said, oh, well, in my experience, 99% of headaches are migraines. And um, the, the GP sort of said, well, actually, possibly in a tertiary neurology headache clinic, that may be the case. But actually, in primary care, we see headaches from worry. Mm. We see headaches from being beaten up mm. we see headaches from chronic neck problems from mm -hmm. not being able to afford a bed to sleep in we see so many mm -hmm. other sorts of things which and, and it just makes me wonder with some persistent physical symptoms whether actually perhaps we need to we're both gps we need to big up our own superpowers mm, to recognize absolutely. that given that so much of medical education is done in single specialty hospital clinics that a lot of patients with persistent physical symptoms sort of say well I went to the hospital and they told me I wasn't having a heart attack so I'm back here and then we think oh I won't send you again with your currently inexplicable chest pain or whatever so actually we are holding on to that uncertainty and trying to help them live with it in a way that, that often the patients aren't even there in the hospital. Yeah, they don't see them. I mean, I would say it, it does. My my argument for doing this at undergraduate level, because again, the, the, some of the barriers were from the educators saying, "Well, this is too complicated. We can't teach this to undergraduates because we we know we don't really understand it ourselves. So so we don't want to confuse them." Um, 
and some even said it was dangerous to try and teach it to to undergraduates. Um, but it crop, you know, these crop up in in almost every specialty. Any specialty where you are seeing patients, you will probably see this. Um, arguably, the renal physicians won't. You know, well, they're, they're you know their take is you know, if the urethanies are normal, they're not my patients. You know, but but most other medical specialties will see this, and whether or not you choose to then deal, try and deal with it, or whether you just bounce it back <laughs> to the GP. Well, I guess that's up to you a little bit. Um, but it crops up in nearly every medical specialty, and um, uh, I'm trying to think of my stats now. So it's 30 to 70 percent of neurology, gynaecology, and rheumatology outpatient presentations are, are, again have PPS as the origin complaints. If you look back at new referrals to gastroenterology, about a third of those are functional. And so what happens, as you say, a lot of the time is, okay, we do all the tests. It's not organic in quotation marks. We send you back or we say it's just IBS and we send you back to the GP. So yes, we are holding, we are seeing and we are holding a lot of this. And as you say, our superpower is looking at the whole patient. Um, and we were talking before the call about, you know, the issues with um, the assumptions of biomedicine and mind-body dualism, the fact that, you know, we, we separate the two out and our patients tend to separate the two out. Uh, we are looking at the whole person. Uh, and and so, yes, arguably, we you know, we, we should be good at this stuff, but it's but it's hard. It is hard. It's hard because, the, you know, an understanding of the mechanisms, I think, is, is needed and it is complicated. Um, yeah. <laughs> So on to the vagina bible, which I suppose at first first glances you might think, well, actually, what has this got to do with persistent physical symptoms? But I suppose you've almost you've alluded to that, and mm-hmm. um, you've been talking about you know the percentage of referrals to gynaecology clinic, um, which are found not to have a discernible organic cause mm-hmm. um, for the symptomatology of the patients. And I suppose I was wondering, um, you know, with this book, I'd seen it a little bit on on social media, and um, then then you suggested it. Um, so, and here we are. But I was wondering, what was it that got you to pick it up for the first time in the first place? So it was it was the chat on. A, we were on a, a group WhatsApp about uh, family planning issues, and someone brought up the issue of vaginismus. And I so I reached for the the book to see if it had a chapter on it. Um, and yet, sure enough, she's got a great chapter on um, on vaginismus on. Um, uh, vulvodynia, pelvic floor muscle spasm, PFMS, um, and she deals with that really well. So, so I sent us a, a snapshot, and that that's how we got got to today, really. So, as I say, she you know, she's this is her. She's an OBGYN, uh, as you would say in America, um, but her her interest is in is in pelvic pain and vulval pain, and she deals with that really well in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. So I thought it was excellent from from that point of view yeah and I think you just pick it up and I have had to laugh so I when I first when I was reading this um in preparation for today and I often carry books around with me um, and read them and I don't see why I should be embarrassed because I think one of the topics that is is covered brilliantly in this book is shame um and lack of awareness of of you know vulval anatomy and I hope we're going to come back to that in a moment but I I was reading it and I was sat in a cafe um out um, in the Peak District with this book, with my lunch, having finished work relatively early, gone to go and pick my children up. And I was reading it and I was eating my toaster sandwich and it was all absolutely lovely. And then I got up to go over to the till to pay and I dropped it. So I dropped the vagina Bible at the feet of an elderly lady who looked at the book, 
looked me in the eye, gasped, and then left the cafe. Excellent. And I just thought, that actually says so much, doesn't yeah. it, about what is wrong with us as a society yeah. and our inability to talk about this. Yes, all in one moment. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 was, I was making a point of reading it everywhere, you know, on the train, where anyone could see me. Because, as you say, you know, we have this, this as she talks about this in the book, this, this shame of talking about female anatomy, talking about vulvas, vaginas, and, and saying those words. Um, yeah, yeah, so I was reading it with, with pride. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, sad, it's sad, isn't it? But a sort of classic moment that just tells you where, you know, where, why we are where we are, I suppose, with women's health. The front cover, I just think, is, is brilliant. So um, if anybody hasn't seen it, um, we obviously don't have audio because this is a podcast, but go and look up the front cover. It's fantastic. You've got this enormous bright pink zip across the middle. Um, and I think there is that sort of sense, I think, in the minds of so many people, they want to sort of zip it up. You, they sort of want to believe that their genital area um, is a bit like that of some kind of, you know, doll that you undress it and, and and maybe there's a tiny little natal cleft at the back. But other than that, it's sort of hidden in, inside. That's and, neat. Yeah. And, neat, and neat. And then and then it actually says on there, the vagina Bible, the vulva and the vagina, separating the myth from the medicine. And I've certainly heard um, Jen Gunter um, interviewed where she talks about the fact that actually she wanted to call it the vulva Bible. And um, because she says the vagina is important, but it's actually only a really little bit of what this book is all about. But how internationally we are all so bad at anatomy that everybody thinks they know what vagina means and the word vulva is largely meaningless to a really significant subset of the population mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's true I've got a five-year-old little girl and she she's constantly using the wrong term and I'm always correcting her you know because again you know it's just it just from a very early age they get told the wrong word so I'm very keen on yeah using the correct anatomical terms yeah. and actually I think that is a really important point which perhaps if people don't work either in the realms of women's health or in child protection, um, there's some really, really good evidence behind teaching children the correct names for their genitals. Um, particularly, you know, we don't want to talk about child abuse, um, and we're not going to be talking a lot about child abuse here, but I do think there is something really important that if a child says, someone touched my vulva, yeah. that actually that is unequivocal, where somebody touched my mini well, yeah. what or who is mini? Well, bottom, you know, some some children call the whole area their bottom, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And again, the other thing I find really puzzling is these people, this whole idea of front bottom and back bottom, because I'd not really come across that until, I think until I started working in Chesterfield, this whole front bottom, back bottom thing. Mm. And I... I mean, it's just odd, isn't it? First of all, and um, but you know, it works for some people. Then I had this conversation with one of my one of my children who is very astute, and she said, "But aren't there three? I mean, if you're going to say back bottom for bum, then presumably front bottom is where you wee out of, and therefore presumably is your vagina your middle bottom." Mm, yes, and I was just like, point. "Yes, very good point." Yeah, yeah, very astute child you have there. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, you know, I just think that the, some, of, some of that is, um, is so important. So she starts off, doesn't she, in this book with, with lots, of, um, lots of really straightforward anatomy. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and, and I like the fact that at the beginning she sort of actually then says, because it's so well indexed and there's such sort of brilliant short 
chapters. Um, she just says, you can read the book in order from front to back or visit specific chapters or sections. It's all good. We hope you're going to go back to particular pages, mm-hmm. um, but you you don't need to start right out at the beginning. But in the getting started, it is really all just about straightforward mm-hmm. anatomy or what we think of as straightforward because you and I probably spend a quite alarming proportion of our working week looking at vulvas mm-hmm. and vaginas where mm-hmm. lots of mm-hmm. the rest of the population don't. Yes, privilege of our position, yeah. <laughs> so kind of coming on, was there anything um, sort of in the, in the anatomy um, side of the book that you found particularly useful or helpful? I think, as you say, just, just having that, that diagram and thinking about okay, how could I use this for my clinical practice? And that lovely clear diagram, which just has, a, you know, the, the arrows pointing at everything, you know, in terms of the ex- external anatomy. Um, again, we talked a bit about, before the call about um, how our patients might struggle with using the correct terminology, or they might feel too embarrassed to say exactly where it hurts or it itches or it feels uncomfortable. And so if you had a picture and you could say, well, point, can you point for me, you know, where it's uncomfortable? Um, then I think that's a really helpful tool for practice um I always think the cross sections I'm not sure how helpful they are for again for patients because it's uh, you don't think of your body in that way <laughs> do you and, and I think there can be a, the, the cross section can often be a little bit confusing but I think that you know that sort of um external anatomy picture would probably be the one I'd go to the most you know if I was using it in practice yeah, yeah. I really like that. The other bit that I really like towards the beginning is there's a section about vaginal discharge mm-hmm. and she shows a picture where it's slightly scaled down, but you've got a hand holding um, what she calls a mini pad, which I suppose we'd probably call a panty liner in the UK, mm-hmm. um, and points out that a typical vagina produces sort of one to four millilitres of discharge every 24 hours. And she shows you on a sort of stylized image what two mils of discharge on a panty liner would look like. Um, and I think I don't know about you, I see so many women who come and say, but this isn't normal, this isn't normal, um, because they have got some vaginal discharge. And of course, there are abnormal vaginal discharges, and Jen Gunter writes brilliantly about them as well. <laughs> but the idea that actually vaginas are not dry, um, or sometimes they are, I mean, later on in life, and that's also not normal. Um, <laughs> this, this, this idea of, look, actually, it's, it's self-cleaning and damp, and that's completely normal, and we need to be talking about this a lot more. Yes. And she explains why that is. You know, she talks about, you know, the different cells that are there, the mucus that's being produced and the function of those things. You know, she's also talking about those in in terms of their protective function for in, to stop infection. Um, so she sort of puts the positive spin on, on vaginal discharge, which can be just seen as a nuisance or unclean or there's something wrong you know it's it's there it serves a function it's it's got a purpose it's important you know so she kind of tries to get us to to kind of accept that I think yeah and um, there's a wonderful section um you know which is talking about sort of STIs and things and this this myth um which we've all seem to have been told and I can remember being told this um at medical school and she's very firm that this is not the case this weird idea of you must wear white cotton knickers mm-hmm. and that if you don't something will go wrong. She sort of she's very flippant and sort of says, you know, vulvas can cope with vulvas can cope with poo and vaginas can push out babies and they can all cope with, you know, semen and all sorts of other things. You're really telling me that a little bit of lace is going to cause a problem. And I at that point I thought, oh I 
really like you. Yeah, no, it was brilliant. And again, that's sort of the white underwear comes, you know, with those sort of cultural ideas around purity and cleanliness. And, and she points very firmly at the patriarchy as being responsible for, for where these ideas come, come from. And she gets the reader to really question, um, you know, where you get those sort of gut feels about, about your body. It's all coming from a, a sort of social norms and so on. So it's, yeah, it, 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 she's great at that. And she's very good at sort of poking fun, I suppose, uh, uh, at the patriarchy, at ridiculous ideas like making bread out of vaginal yeast. Um, you know, she, she, you know, ruthlessly takes the, takes the mick um, out of all of those things. But, but also in seriousness later on in the book talks to the reader about the importance of critical appraisal um of getting your information from the right sources you know w- why we end up believing all this nonsense really um you know she's she's got this mission to myth bust and and uh, uh, and get people informed and empowered about their bodies and i really uh, you know admired her for that really yeah <laughs> can we come on and, and talk about the um sort of gynecological persistent physical symptoms side of things and how she covers that yeah so she's got uh two really good chapters um on on vulvodynia and uh and vaginismus um muscle spasm and she does a really good job of explaining what's going on in the body there so again before we came on the call we you know we were talking about our uh, the issue we have in our consultations around persistent physical symptoms is we don't do a good job of of explanation we tell people what what it's not we say well don't worry it's not cancer it's not an infection um or it's not inflammation you know so we, we tell them what it's not but we don't explain what it is um so she she talks about pain and itch and how the neural networks can essentially get slightly confused sometimes uh, which you know, something that might start out as an itch might then turn into a pain after a, a, a slightly longer period of time, because all those nerves are bunched together in a quite a you know close network in the pelvis, and so it's it's quite easy therefore to get you know literally sort of crossed wires if you're thinking about it in terms of in terms of the neural network. Um, so she explains it. She she kind of educates the the reader to understand what's going on, and when you understand what's going on, it becomes less scary you understand what's what was happening in your body uh, and similarly with uh, with uh, pelvic floor spasm um you know she talks about you know imagine a imagine a clenched fist you know that that's what's going on uh, and and she again she talks about the anatomy um of the pelvic floor where all those muscles run from and to so she gives this very visual explanation as to what's going on which which i think you know as a reader you can really um it really helps you understand the process um it helps you understand why it's painful um helps you understand why it might be difficult to have intercourse um so so yeah she she does a really good job at explanation and i think that that's that's the bit that we could all possibly do better in our clinical practice is is not just saying well don't worry about it's nothing dangerous it's not cancer but actually saying well these are the reasons why you are getting the symptoms that you are this is what's going on in your body um and yes the management is 
often more difficult. There's not easy answers to this. I mean, she points towards physical therapy as a as a solution for um, pelvic muscle spasm and vaginismus. You know, it, it depends on what area of the country you're working in. You know, we do. You know, I'm working in Sheffield. We do have access to to gynae physio, but it's you know, a long waiting time and so on. So, you know, she's writing from a very North American healthcare system perspective, where I think it might possibly be easier for some people to access these things um i think some for some of our patients it, it isn't but but if you can help people with the explanation if they understand what's happening it takes the fear away and actually sometimes that's enough for, to help people self-manage their condition and uh, they may need a bit more help a bit more hand-holding um but yeah i think she does those sections really really well and really nicely um yeah Mm-hmm. I've certainly thought, um, you know, that the explanations are are so good, and I haven't yet, um, you know, given this or recommended this to a patient. Weirdly, since I've read it, I've I don't seem to have seen anybody with vulval pain, so it's almost like an, a really weird insurance policy. And I'm like, oh, now I can now I know exactly what I'd send them. But I think one of the things that she talks about really well, and I think is is so important actually when you're a GP, is that whole idea of when people are seeking a why for something Mm -hmm. that actually sometimes that whole you know that they're really really worried have they got an infection have they got something um it's not only saying no you don't have this but saying i think you've got this thing Mm -hmm. and actually i do think sometimes people go oh right okay okay so so this is or, or okay other people have this um and that relief again which i think is is so important in a sort of explanation i think finding a chapter in a book and um, you know we know people do you know watch a tv show and suddenly go oh my goodness i've got this thing i thought i was going mad but actually there seems to be a tv program on it it must it must be a bit more widespread than that yeah, yeah. or finding that in a book my sense is that there are probably lots and lots of women who have vulvodynia or lots of women who have vaginismus who literally never come and see us so yeah. the people you know, there's probably a, a significantly bigger symptom burden out there in the world than is actually, you know, presenting in any official statistics. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure. I think certainly for our, our practice population. So um, I work in an area where, you know, we have a, a lot of people who don't speak English who have access problems you know, in terms of accessing the health service because of literacy barriers, um, because of education barriers. Uh, and, and then that's even before we get to, you know, uh, you know, the fact that we don't have enough doctors to service the need of our population. You know, so so access is really, really difficult. And, um, you know, I, I don't often see these these problems present and a lot of our women have have have, you know are survivors of uh, fgm female genital mutilation and and even they don't come with with pain because i think there's such a degree of possibly shame or not wanting to bother us with it that um it's not an often it doesn't it doesn't come as a presenting cause and also i mean i think my my main quibble with the book is that i'm not sure i could recommend this to any of my patients the reading level's too high um you know so it's very much written for um, fairly well educated, um, I'd say slightly neurotic goop, re- goop reading North Americans. Um, you know, it, it, for for my practice population, I, again, I'm just not. I think there's some bits I could I could use for from it, like the diagrams, the explanations, which I will then lodge in my brain that I can then sort of translate in a way that that makes sense for my patients. Um, little tips like using the selfie 
the mirror on the selfie stick, I think, is a good one. You know, if if the patient feels comfortable to look at their own vulva, which a lot of people aren't. So, you know, checking out first that they feel happy with that. But that as a tool, again, for helping the explanation, um, for helping making sure that we are both talking about the same thing, Um you know, I, so I thought I'd definitely take that away for for my practice. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm almost quite tempted to to think this is a book that, as you say, it's there's only a certain number of patients and um, who would appreciate it. And I work in a fairly affluent white middle class area, and I can see that you know probably more of my patients might want to engage with it. But actually, I think it's a really good book for doctors. It's written. Mm. It's written for those patients, but actually, as I was reading it, you know, I was laughing out loud and thinking, aha, okay, yep, you do learn that from wider reading, doing other things. And and actually, I was thinking for so many, um, you know, I feel like I'm having really anti-man here, but so many of my male GP trainees who say, I just don't know, I just don't have a clue. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you realise that, you know, I suppose it's the whole idea of what I think, what I know that I know it's really easy to assume that other people know that stuff too, yeah. where actually I know that stuff because I've been a doctor for 20 years, because I've seen lots and lots of patients with vulval health problems, yeah. because I'm a bit interested, because once you start looking at one thing, social media sends you another hundred different things yes. because of who I might choose to follow on Instagram or Twitter. Um, Jen Gunter is epic on both. Very much recommend following her on, on both of those, but actually realising that, you know, your average male, particularly non-UK graduate, but actually UK graduates too, male GP trainee might be following all sorts of interesting things on their social media, but it's probably not stuff about vulval pain or normal no. vaginal flora. Or using jade eggs to, <laughs> I don't know, cleanse your yoni or whatever it is. Yeah, they're not, they're not going to be seeing that stuff, are they? Um, not at all. So yeah, I, I think I think definitely useful for, for medics, actually, um, and possibly male medics. I, I, again, I'd probably exercise a note of, of caution, really. She's, 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 she's fighting the patriarchy very strongly in this, this book, and quite rightly, they've got a lot to answer. It's got a lot to answer for. But... Um, I worry a little bit that it's it's a it could be off-putting for you know cis men um, because because she is really having a go, and you could say well that's probably you know it's about time she did and someone did because it's you know so the patriarch has got a lot to answer for in terms of misinformation the shame that we all have about our bodies etc. But I you know I, I suppose I. I would hope for a conversation that's possibly a bit more levelling and um, in sort of verging more on the educational rather than, you know, I'm going to beat you around the head with this, which is very firmly what she's tr- trying to do, I think. You know, there's a whole page on the sim sim and the sim speculum, which I think, you know, this this is a rant, really. This is not particularly helpful for, <laughs> for the reader, I don't think. She's just getting it off her, her, her chest, uh, the fact that the sim speculum was invented by a woman, not a, not a, not a dismal gynecologist, you know. So that was very much, I felt, you know, her that's her rant. That's her stuff that she's getting off her, her chest a little bit. So I would say, yes, good for men to read this, but I'd exercise a note of caution that it, it's, you know, it's quite, it's very anti-patriarchy and, and unashamedly so. So you're just, I guess, going to have to get over that before you open up the front the front cover, which says, I'm just going to find her opening uh, in, 
inscription um, for every woman who has ever been told, usually by some dude, that she's too wet, too dry, too gross, too loose, too tight, too bloody or too smelly. This book is for you. So very much empowering women, but also, you know, (laughs) possibly very off-putting for men reading it. One of the things I think that is really um, interesting, there's a very, very small chapter, but I really liked fairly early on, um, there is a chapter um, about trans vulvas. Um, And I thought, actually, I really like that because I always get a little bit worried when something seems to be quite up for smashing the patriarchy, not up for... Um, not up for lots of anti-trans stuff and I was really scared and then that comes in early enough that you go okay it's fine yes yes it's okay and actually it's a great chapter it's not going to tell you an enormous amount about trans health because this is not what this book is for but actually an understanding that if you are taking high doses of testosterone there will be different effects there will be effects on you know, on the vagina, there will be effects on your vulva. And similarly, if you've had a vaginoplasty surgically, and um, because you've, you know, you've transitioned to being, um, to being female, that actually your vagina is different. It, it has different things. And some of this may or may not apply. And it's just presented in such a really straightforward, mm-hmm. by the way, this is important. And this is important. I just thought, oh, gosh, yes, I really thought about these chapter. people. Yeah. And, and it was chapter three, again, that kind of, you know, it gave me lots of green, green ticks when I when I saw that. So nice and early on in, in the book. Um, and again, some really nice, useful, practical points, like the use of topical estrogen um, for trans men. Um you know, if they're having problems with, with uh, vaginal pain or dryness, that actually it won't it won't block the effect of um, uh, systemic testosterone if they're they are taking hormones um, orally. You know, so, or uh, you know, so uh, that was a really useful practice point. And then you know, again, thinking about hair removal for people who've had a, a neo vagina created, um, and just again, sort of, it makes sense when you think about it that you know the the logic. If you're using scrotal skin to create that vagina, of course, the skin organisms there are not going to be lactobacilli. So you're not going to be getting thrush. You're going to be getting infections more related to sort of you know, skin skin organisms, staph and strep, and so on. So again, as a medic reading that, that was a really really helpful chapter, and I hope will will help me help my trans patients. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because you, you picked up on, on her little rant about the sim speculum. And actually, I suppose for me, I quite like that. Um, I think because there has been so much in medicine about the awfulness of, of Marin Sims and, you know, the way that slave women were treated and his behaviour overall. And I think what she's really trying to say is actually, if you're having a speculum examination, you are not continuing to support a racist legacy because hardly anyone uses the sims speculum and actually even if they do somebody else invented it before but like let's call let's not call it sims but i think almost you've kind of alluded to this i think one of the areas that she almost falls down um is that i feel like as you say this is this is almost a book for um the people who might otherwise be sidetracked and conned by goop or some other social media influencers and actually i think it's written from a really white professional context isn't it mm, mm, mm. a very north american context you know even things like um oh, you know she was talking about p- period products you know and a lot of them she was talking about were you know ones that i wasn't i'm not at all familiar with because they're just they're just us you know us products that, that i don't know about um uh and and quite dismissive on reusable um, period wear, which again is one of my my bugbears. Um, you know uh, the environmental impact of 
disposable sanitary products is is massive it's massive you know when you think you know a sort of sanitary pad will take about 500 to 800 years to biodegrade and you think about the number that we're going through she, she, she talks about reusable period where it's being something only that you, you might use in in lower middle income countries so why would you walk around with a plastic bag to put your reusable underwear in um and she's uh, so that made me a bit cross I have to say because she, she really dismissed the environmental impact um and also you know the fact that a lot of our girls even in the UK are living in period poverty so actually um reusable sanitary wear um you know once you make the initial investment you know I know some of these period pants can be quite expensive but um can actually be a really cheap way of, of having access to, to period products um so yeah I was a bit I was a bit cross with her about, about that <laughs> I was I wasn't I'm intrigued because I know she's got a new book out which is about periods and yeah. I'm really interested and um, because you know I'm a I'm a I'm a huge fan of um I'm a huge fan of period pants um in particular um you know as are my daughters big fans of the of period pants um and and I think um yeah I sort of thought oh I really hope um it hasn't put me off reading her period book but I keep thinking oh I really hope that you you know about you know about this and you're going to think a bit more about um the impact I mean, kind of moved on a little bit because she, she published this I think it was 2018 wasn't it and she's and she's talked about them as being a bit of an expensive con but actually they're not the price has come down quite a lot on period pants in the last year or two you know I had a look just before our call so 13 pounds Modi Bodhi are doing some really nice ones for 13 pounds that are for for you know, for trans men as well, you know, um, and they label them as, you know, for, for people who menstruate rather than for women or, you know, so, um, y- you know, it gets, it gets around some of those issues, which she talks about in, in her book, uh, for trans men who still have a uterus of, you know, again, shame around uh, having period products, not being able to use internal products. Um, period pants are a really great, great way you know they've got a pair that look just like y fronts really so that's a really discreet way of, of managing your periods to my mind if if you're a, a trans man <laughs> so um yeah so i'll be interested to see what she what she you know maybe maybe it's updated and uh, and she's a bit more pro <laughs> pro period pants in the latest book we'll we'll see we'll have to see won't we we will we will well um maybe maybe that's what we need to do we need to go and put that on our list and and, yes. and maybe maybe come back um yes. sometime in the future to, to talk about her new book katie thank you so much for joining me today it's been a real joy talking to you it's been great joining you thank you so much for having me thanks for listening to this episode of bedside reading i hope you've enjoyed the show please do rate and review us why not follow us on Twitter at Bedside Podcast? If there's a book you're desperate to discuss, please message. I'd love to have you on to chat about it. Bedside Reading is hosted and produced by Tara George and edited by Louis G.